Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Liverpool finally lose. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and that we get our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Not too bad. Thanks, Dan. Unfortunately, from a Spurs point of view, not too good. But from a good Premier League weekend with plenty of exciting action, then it wasn't too bad, was it? Yes, there was plenty of excitement elsewhere. I think Spurs might be bottom of our schedule this show, not on a purpose sort of thing, but there's a lot more other stories to get through. Of course, also helping Cole is Drew, his uh, strike partner. He'll be feeding the supply line. So, Drew, how have you been in the past week? I've been doing well personally in terms of being a Chelsea supporter, not exactly the best of weeks after that Bournemouth draw, but I'm sure we'll get into it soon. Yeah, we certainly will. Before we do, though, let's do the social media bits first. Otherwise, we'll be talking into the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform... Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode and also leave a review so we can move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Just a quick one to say the Real Football Cast is no longer sponsored by Loserpool. A big thanks for the opportunity over the past two seasons. I hope all goes well for them in the future. While if you want to sponsor the show for next season, I can be contacted via the two Twitter accounts that I've just mentioned. Right then, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? There's really one place we can go, and that's Vicarage Road, because Liverpool's monster unbeaten run has finally come to an end. And I guess, Cole, if you're going to lose your first league game in, what, 14 months, you may as well do it properly. Oh, that's right. You, you may as well go big, mightn't you, and just get a true thumping in the end. Um, and like I say, I think we called it last week, didn't we, that we think Liverpool would have come back with a vengeance um, and really put Watford to the sword. But it didn't turn out that way. Watford put in a really good performance um, and, and got the result that I guess all Arsenal fans were hoping for because that invincible was looking on the cards. Um and a great result. You know, Liverpool just had one of them days again. You know, they have looked a little bit tired lately. We didn't, you know, we thought they'd get a wake-up call. But clearly not on, you know, this weekend. They still went in a little bit sluggish. Didn't have their best game. You know, Van Dijk a little bit off. And it just goes to show Watford there on the day managed to punish them. And a result that no one saw coming. Because, Drew, I think we'd have to say it was a real un-Liverpool-like showing. But... Has that been the ultimate byproduct of the last few weeks? Let's take um, them beating Norwich just by a goal. West Ham, again, by a goal. Losing to Atletico Madrid. So it's easy to say now, but is there a sense of that result was coming? Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, if you look at them after the you know Premier League winter break, all those games you mentioned, 
Liverpool have not played well. So I think it was coming eventually a loss, but I don't think you could say it was coming in the manner that it did. Like Carl already mentioned, how good Watford were on the day, of course, came out of nowhere. But even more importantly, how poor Liverpool were. I mean, the most telling sign to me from this match that Liverpool just weren't having it that day was Jurgen Klopp. Usually we see him gesticulating, you know, throwing his arms in the air, yelling at his players, getting them to do whatever it is that he wants. But in this match, there was a stunned appearance on his face. Blank, deer in the headlights look. And I think that to me really was emblematic of their performance. Van Dyke was slow on one, if not two of the goals to kind of respond and, and try and catch up with Watford on the break. And so, again, I think there was so many things that kind of made a perfect storm in this match. And so, yes, we could say a Liverpool loss was coming, but not in this manner. And again, evidenced clearly by Jurgen Klopp looking stunned and not knowing how to respond against Watford, which was the most surprising thing on the night. Cole, we referenced Jordan Henderson last week and we came to the conclusion that his absence wouldn't necessarily be a problem. That said, they certainly missed both he and James Milner on Saturday, didn't they? Yeah, well, I think the the thing that Liverpool have missed with Henderson is he, he is a leader, isn't he? And and you kind of get the impression that on the pitch he might be someone who, when things are not going the way they should be, can actually calm people down and kind of regroup, get everyone together, and get them going. So, you know, I'll admit they've probably got players who, capability wise, can you know excel Henderson. But there are times where, you know, that person on the pitch might bring different attributes, might not necessarily be with his footballing skill, but just his leadership and the way that he can kind of calm the ship. And it might be that, yeah, we might be about to see that Liverpool, you know, he could be the one player missing that Liverpool really do miss. And let's face it, no one would have put him down. If you kind of said Henderson will be injured before, most people would probably say Liverpool will get by and they wouldn't notice much difference. But for all we know, we could be about to see he's more important to them than we realise. And Drew, I don't think Liverpool are going to miss Dejan Lovren anytime soon. Another indifferent showing from the Croatian and although Jurgen Klopp was perhaps quick to come to his defence, you do get the feeling that was more to protect the player rather than actually believe in the words that were coming out of his mouth. Yeah, probably. Because I mean, don't forget, Lovren's gotten stick before from fans, he's gotten stick from pundits, he's gotten stick from Jurgen Klopp himself. I mean, wasn't it him against Spurs when he got subbed out a couple years ago in like the 25th or 30th minute? I believe it was Lovren. Um, and so he's kind of had his issues before, and he has plenty of flaws as a center back. That's why he's been dropped from the team at several times. And so I, I do like Jurgen Klopp coming out and trying to defend his player, especially, I think, in, in a match like this, the the way they performed and everything that came together, there's no reason for Jurgen Klopp to chastise his players publicly, right? They all know. I mean, you could see the the dejected feeling in their faces during the match after, you know, in, in the players and Klopp. And so I think he's doing the right thing here. He doesn't need to to have a go at any players publicly. Do that behind closed doors. I think he probably did and, and did it the right way. So I, I appreciate what he did in trying to protect Dayon Lovren uh, it, 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 after this game. Of course, Carl, the focus will be on Liverpool and the end of their run, which costs them the mantle of Invincible. But that win for Watford cannot be underestimated. And more importantly, that's going to be absolutely huge in the battle to avoid the drop. Yeah, I, I did think it was brilliant in the uh, post-match when, you know, that Pearson said, yeah, well, it was kind of a useful result. I mean, you know, <laughs> when you beat Liverpool, it's a little bit more than a useful result, isn't it? <laughs> you know, kind of downplaying it a bit. Um, it was a tremendous result and one that you kind of think could spur them on and really give them some momentum and confidence to go and kind of make themselves safe this year. Um They've just got to hope this isn't one of them games where you go and turn Liverpool over and then next week lose at home to someone that you really shouldn't and put in a real dire performance. You'd like to think it's a spring ball now that can push them, you know. And when you've got someone like Deeney up front, you know, bullying people, the one thing that I think Watford, you know, it would be an interesting question to ask Watford fans is, would they have taken a defeat to avoid Delefeu getting injured because that could really be a blow to them now because he can be brilliant, you know, and losing him what looks like could be quite a while he's out injured now, that could be a major blow for them. But in terms of result, it could be a season saver. 
Yeah, Delafoe was going to be my next question to you, actually, Carl. So, good shout on that one. Drew, I'll ask you this one. In your opinion, how did Watford get it so right? I mean, they tested Liverpool quite a lot at Anfield. Is there a sense that that performance led into this one? Nigel Pearson might have looked at that and thought, do you know what? This is a team that can be got at. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and not just Watford, right? On different occasions this year, um, maybe not so much through the Christmas period, but kind of in that beginning part of the year, Liverpool had their flaws defensively. We saw teams kind of slice them up a few times, and not just in one match, but in lots of them. And Watford is is one that, that you mentioned. And so I think Pearson looked at that. I think he saw a team that was a little bit vulnerable in Liverpool not having performing well. And I think one of the biggest things was, and this isn't really to Liverpool, or I'm sorry, this is not to Watford's credit, but Liverpool were, I thought, slow, lethargical, kind of lazy on the day. But with that being said... You have to give credit to Watford for noticing that. And especially, all those goals came af- after the half, which means Nigel Pearson saw it as well. And he told his team, guys, we have a chance. We can take it to him. Liverpool had, I believe it was zero shots on target at the half and only one after the match. And so for Watford, for a team as bad as they have been this season, I think they deserve a ton of credit and praise for being able to take advantage of Liverpool when they weren't having their best day. And of course, Ismail Sar, hats off to him. Absolutely fantastic for both of his goals. Really great finishes from him. And of course, kind of a, a breakout moment, I think, this season. So you got to give credit to Watford for all of the places that they did do well. And of course, to Nigel Pearson, who had to deal with De La Feu getting injured, which I know we're going to get to in just a second. Um, and again, taking advantage of that poor Liverpool side. Hats off to Watford for a very good performance. Yes, Carl, if we chuck it back to you and Delafoe, I mean, I think you just sort of referenced it, but how much of a blow will that be to the Hornets? Yes, they had Ismail Saar get a double, but you'd have to say that Delafoe has been one of Watford's key men up until now. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when he's on fire, then Watford are on fire, aren't they? Because he, he just creates lots of problems. You know, you look at last year in their FA Cup semi-final, you know, they were kind of dead and buried. And then all of a sudden, you know, he comes on and next thing you know, Watford are back in the game and ultimately end up winning that tie. And that was just because of the creativity that he brought and kind of that just motivated everyone. You know, he is the sort of player that can save your season. Um and unfortunately for Watford, you know, like I say, I wonder if you asked him the question of would you have taken a defeat if it meant Delafoe wasn't injured and you have him for the rest of the season, you might find some Watford fans turn around and say to you, well, yeah, actually, I'd have taken an expected defeat against Liverpool to have him for the remainder of the season because losing him, you know, they've really got to do something to recover because he's, he's one of their key players this year. Well, this is it, isn't it? That short-term boost could cost you 10 matches, couldn't it? And I think that's the danger. If we look at the Premier League table, Drew, the usual hallowed marker is 40 points. That's usually the target where teams will look to get that and then think we're safe. However, could you see it being slightly less this season? I'm thinking 37, maybe 38. Is that a fair figure to throw in your direction? I honestly think that might even be a little bit too high in terms of surviving. Yeah. Now, yeah, right. 40 points is always the magical number. But that's that's more like going into the season, right? And then as we get towards the, the back half of the year, we can kind of see where that that line of demarcation is going to be. But this year, I mean, the teams we're looking at now, right? Bournemouth still in the relegation zone on 27, and they're tied with Watford, who are only above them on goal difference. And I, I find it hard to believe to see these teams, and then, of course, below them, Aston Villa and Norwich, winning three or four more matches – getting a couple draws in there as well. I think another 10 points to get to 37, I actually think that's a tall order for some of these teams because not all of them have the easiest of run-ins. So 37 might be enough to, or might be the line of demarcation, but I think that's a little high. If I'm not a betting man. If I were, I would probably go closer to 34 or 35 because I don't see a lot of points coming for these teams. You might get a shock result, like we saw with Watford, and, and if that happens, congratulations to these teams. They'll definitely need it, but it's a tall order, I think, for any of them to get another 10 or 12 points. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I think they can't really all get 37. There's so many sort of teams in and around that you are going to get, I guess, a couple maybe that will fall short of that. So I think 34 might be more inclined to, uh, to closer to actually what is required. Right, let's go to the first major final of the season now, and it's one that saw Man City continue to hold their vice-like grip on the Carabao Cup. So, Carl, it may be a trophy that's viewed as a 
slightly maligned competition, but Pep Guardiola absolutely loves it, doesn't he? Yeah, and rightly so, because I think it kind of is the early one that can set the tone, isn't it? And kind of, you know, we have seen teams in the past kind of struggle where they win that and then suddenly they're on the beach after um, and kind of resting on their laurels where City have kind of used it in the past, haven't they, to get the first one in the bag and then spur them on for the remainder of the season. So, and, you know, if you look at the context of this season, then I think that was vital that City won that this year more than ever because, you sign to sit there and think, well, the Champions League, that is a big ask, although great result in the week. Um, but again, you've still got some tough games to come there. So that's not a walk in the park to win that. The league has gone. So that's the biggest trophy for them out of the way. Um, and in the FA Cup, obviously, you know, they'd want to win that. So I think this year was key that they won it to kind of give them some respect come the end of the season. And I think there was no way Pep wanted to see his side lose it and he wouldn't risk it by playing a weakened team. Um, and thankfully, that they got the job done. Drew, a few weeks back, we were perhaps a bit flippant in discussing Villa's demise, saying that this could have been a bloodbath, you know, five, sixes, that kind of thing. To their credit, they did make a game of it, especially at one point. They were 2-0 down, and you were probably thinking, here we go, it's going to get nasty. But, you know, like I say, there was a game in it, and two minutes from the end, it could have been going to penalties. And from there, it could have been anyone's. Yeah, now, we, we were a bit dismissive, and, and myself included. I'll... <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I will hold my hand up high and say I was one of those guys. I was probably leading the charge. And you know what? I stick by that. I don't believe in Aston Villa for, for the Premier League survival at this point. Um, but in this game, I think you do have to give them credit. right? John Stones came to the rescue for the wrong team when he slipped and allowed uh, Aston Villa to score that goal right before halftime. And then Bjorn Ingles comes close, heading it, and it was saved by Bravo and then pushed off the post. Um, Aston Villa hung in this at no point in the second half. Did I ever think to myself, you know what, this city are on cruise control and it's over all the way until the final whistle. I thought it was very, very tight and Manchester city showed that pep showed that in the respect of bringing on, I believe it was Jesus and Kevin De Bruyne, two of his big time players. Two attack-minded players. And so I think even he was saying, you know what, guys? This isn't finished. We should get a third goal to really make sure that we're going to win this. And in the end, obviously, two was enough. But I think Aston Villa deserve a lot of credit. They have shown at times that fight, that resiliency, that grittiness. And they did it once again in a cup final at Wembley. And so for them, I think Aston Villa can hold their heads up high. They should feel proud of their performance, obviously not the losing part, um, but I don't think they should feel um, ashamed. I don't think they put in a bad shift in any way. And credit to Aston Villa for hanging with a very, very good city side. Cole, Phil Foden found himself on the score sheet. Like Pep, he seems to be another man who loves the Carabao Cup. But for all his talent, how and when does he make a genuine step to the regular first team role that he's been craving? And also, do you feel that right now he has the talent but not the minutes under his belt to really be knocking on the door for England this summer. Well, he, he's got a pretty decent trophy haul so far to his name, hasn't he? Considering that he hasn't actually got that that many minutes under his belt. Um, you know, if you look at the list of honours he's got against his name compared to his kind of stature, then he hasn't done too bad. But I'm like you, Dan. I think you'll be starting to find that he really needs to be breaking into that first team now and with a view to possibly becoming a regular starter next season, doesn't he? Because you then kind of sit there and think, well, how long are you going to let this drift before you actually start getting regular first team minutes in a team um, and start making your claim to become the player that everyone thinks you can be? Um, I can actually see possibly, you know, it, it, I think a lot will depend on what happens with City in this Champions League ban. If they get the ban and it's upheld for two seasons, you could see some players depart. And then maybe at that point, you'll see Foden really step up and take one of those midfield bursts for himself and kind of then be given more of a chance because of the situations surrounding the club. Um, but I think his talent is there for us all to see. And, and he looks a real player. But I do believe that, you know, if I was him and I suddenly am not getting what I consider to be enough minutes next season, I'd be starting to weigh up my options of whether I stay here or I look to move on just to the fact that I can become a first team regular. Yeah, I think he's almost too good to be logjammed now. That Obviously, there is so much talent in front of him and you can understand, you know, that's City's MO really, isn't it? The way they, they function. But for someone who's homegrown and ready to be unleashed week in, week out, it must be very frustrating from his point of view. 
Drew, frustrating for Aston Villa, obviously, not winning the Carabao Cup. They will be able to take some positives in defeat, and I think it was certainly a much better showing than what they offered against the Southampton in the league the week before. Talking of sort of solace, can they use that as positive momentum going forward, or is this going to be sort of a case of a flash in the pan, raising their game one last time, and now this sort of season peters out, and they eventually go back to the Championship? They're going to have to use this to springboard them into a, a good final run of the season. But I fear it's going to be that latter part because while this was, I think, a, a positive performance in a lot of ways for Aston Villa, the, the kind of circumstances surrounding it don't lend itself to translating back into the league. You are playing a cup final. You are at a neutral site. You know, you are trying to raise your game for this one momentous occasion. You are playing a Manchester City team, which, while still very, very strong, was rotated. And and while Phil Foden was man of the match and arguably the arguably the best player on the pitch, he is still a reserve for Manchester City. So I think there are a lot of positives to take from us or to take from this match for Aston Villa. I just don't see it translating them translating into the league and helping them towards the stretch run. Obviously, for them and their fans, they need this to happen. I just don't see it really taking place. Okay, earlier that afternoon, Everton shared the points with Manchester United, and I guess you'd have to say it was a tale of two goalkeepers. So first up, Cole, you get David De Gea. On the evidence of that mistake he made on Sunday, can you remember a world-class player going off the boil so quickly? No, he, he kind of, you know, he, he really peaked, didn't he, say a season or so ago when, you know, the guy could stop anything, wasn't he? Like, go-go gadget at certain <laughs> times, wasn't he? You know, with the legs and arms getting everywhere. <laughs> Um, and you have kind of seen a, a slight decline, um, but I guess that's kind of coincided with United becoming a little bit patchy, haven't they? And and you kind of sit there and think, if you look at the defence he's got in front of him, it's not the most solid. Um, so, so it can happen. He's still up there as one of the best, isn't he? Um, but he does seem, you know, these little errors and, you know, what I say lapses in concentration have kind of crept in a little bit more this season. Um, but, He's a top-class goalkeeper, and I think he will obviously be trying to work really hard to rectify that. And I think if United can suddenly put in a little bit more of a solid back four in front of him, then I think we'll see him get back to the you know the quality player that he was a couple of seasons ago. Um, but I don't think United should be too worried. I think he's professional enough to get themselves get himself out of it and you know regain that confidence that he was showing. Well, true. Once again, Jordan Pickford makes life difficult for himself. Should have done better with the Bruno Fernandes effort. Then does a stupendous double save late on to Fort United getting a winner. So as good as the latter was, was the former going to be having Gareth Southgate scratching his head and thinking, hang on, I've got a bit of a goalkeeping dilemma here from an England point of view? Yes, absolutely. And I think the reason is because, number one, Dean Henderson at Sheffield United has been fantastic, right? We have to put that out there. Um, but more importantly, from this match in particular, I think seeing the save or seeing the non-save from Pickford on Bruno Fernandez's shot, I think is a little troubling because while Fernandez did strike the ball well, it went under Pickford's arms. He misjudged it. He didn't get down there quick enough. And this isn't the first time he's made kind of a of a gaffe. You know, I, I think Jordan Pickford has quite a few incidents in him to where you think and say, wow, man, is it really worth it? Especially when the double save uh, towards the end of the match that you brought up, while fantastic – that's reactionary. That's instincts. That wasn't as much of really seeing it, having time to, to think, so to speak, or kind of process what's going on, which when he makes his mistakes, it almost seems like that's what's happening. It's almost too easy, and he should have made it, but he didn't because he was thinking or he misjudged it because I don't want to say lapse in concentration. I think that's too harsh, but you see these blunders from him. And so I think Gareth Southgate has a real question on his hands. This is what I do. If I'm Gareth Southgate, in those March friendlies, I play Dean Henderson as my keeper and whoever I think is going to be my starting back four or five, possibly, if they do wing backs in a back three. That's what I do. Let's see how can they play together. Can Dean Henderson do this not at Sheffield United and with four or five other defenders? We know what Jordan Pickford can do, both good and bad, evidenced in this game. And so I think Gareth Southgate really has a competition on his hands. For Pickford, that's a nightmare scenario. I think for England, it's good and bad because you have different options. And talking of England, Cole, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, he's now scored 13 times in the league this season. 
Surely he has to be knocking on the door for an England call-up this month when we face Italy. Yeah, he's been really impressive this season, hasn't he? And really kind of stepped up to the plate. Um, and, And to be honest... I look at the friendlies as a chance to kind of look at these players and see what they can do. So I certainly would have no qualms in him getting a call up and possibly being given a chance to show what he can do. When you look at the injury problems as well that we've got right now, you know, there is a place there, isn't there, in the summer that could be up for grabs because, you know, if Kane doesn't get himself back to fitness, if Rashford doesn't make it um, or they have some sort of complication on their return, then... You know, you're kind of looking at well, actually, who are we next calling up as a as our main striker? So I don't see why we shouldn't give him a chance in these friendlies, and this is exactly what I'd use them for. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, if you've got friendlies, these are the rarest opportunities or the few opportunities you have to blood new players in the England sort of point of view. So I think really that has to be a nailed on call. And if you don't try them, you'll never know. Of course, Drew, the biggest flashpoint was saved for last, and it's one where Everton thought they snatched a winner, only for VAR to rule it out. So I guess the most personal question here, do you think they made the right decision? Absolutely not. Now, I'm gonna, I want to go with, with kind of two points here. Number one, I don't think De Gea makes the save even without Sigurdsson there. You see him moving to the right for the shot, and then when it takes a deflection, you see him stop his momentum, plant his feet to try and shift back left. Clearly, he saw the ball and the deflection. And again, Sigurdsson doesn't make a play on it. He actually gets out of the way. And more times than not, when players know they're offside, we see them maybe take a few steps and then realize they're offside and back off and don't play the ball. And we play on. So for me, that's the same idea here. Sigurdsson pulls his legs back, knowing he's offside, doesn't want to be in, uh, doesn't want to obstruct. And yet they still call him off. And again, I don't think that De Gea gets to the ball, and he clearly saw it. Other than that, I think the biggest reason that this is a bad call is it was not, to me, clear and obvious. The problem, though, is, of course, it was ruled for offside, essentially. Therefore, offside isn't clear or obvious. He's on and off, and it's just a big nightmare. But again, to me, Sigurdsson was not in the way. He did not obstruct De Gea. And I don't think VAR should have gotten involved or, or at least shouldn't have reversed it because it's not clear and obvious. Yeah, I think, in fairness, it was an absolute mess. I think you're right in the sense that De Gea was going the wrong way. I mean, he's never getting back over to, to save that if Gilfie's, you know, not... No, there. absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, that's one factor that probably wasn't taken into consideration. Carl, have you got anything to add to that? I mean, if you look at Gilfie Sigurdsson, Sigurdsson himself, should he be moving? Because he's on the floor for quite an age. Now, really, he could have probably got up and just sort of nullified any issue by just getting up on his feet and moving, you know, to the side of the pitch and really just having a free shot on goal for Everton. So there's that also. Do we have to question the assistant referee for not signalling? Because that really, if he does that, it takes the whole emotion out of the scenario, doesn't it? You know, last minute, home win, big win over United. There's all that, that maelstrom of sort of noise. All he needs to do is put a flag up and we just go to VAR and it's either checked, ruled out or given it as goal. Yeah, as you say, you know, all of those things you're looking at and saying, you know, there's so many things that could have been done there. Um, And as you say, quite rightly, you know, you just got to use your head, haven't you? And I can't pretty much agree with everything Drew's said there, to be honest. And as you say, they they kind of, you know, if you just do the right thing, then we get the right outcome uh, and everyone walks away happy. So I'd agree with everything you boys have said on that. Fair enough. Right, Drew. Okay, so that decision led to a rather irate Carlo Ancelotti at the end. And although his English isn't great, I think he learned enough words to upset Chris Kavanagh. So that means a red card and no official return to Chelsea this week. That also unleashes big dunk. Are you concerned on that front, Drew? <laughs> no, not really, because he's he's just going to play the team that Ancelotti tells him to play anyways. Um, now, here's what I want to say, though. You're right, Ancelotti's English isn't the best. Clearly, he probably does know a few naughty words that he could say to the to the referee. However, the red card came so fast from the referee, I almost think he was ready to do that. He saw Ancelotti coming and was like, you know what? If he says something in, in just the wrong way, I'm just going to send him off. He looked ready with his red card almost in hand. And so I don't know what was said between Ancelotti and the referee, and I'm sure that's going to stay private forever. As he mentioned, he's going to keep it that way. To me, 
it seemed a little reactionary. It seemed too quick. And so for Ancelotti, I think it's a bit harsh. And unfortunately, that's true. We're going to miss him over at Chelsea uh, next weekend. So that's kind of unfortunate. Um, but again, I'm kind of with Ancelotti on this. For a guy who doesn't get too angry or too animated, it's hard for me to see him going crazy at Chris Kavanaugh uh, that quickly. Yeah, it's a strange one, really. I think, you know, the game's gone. Do you really need to be showing a red card? I think that's what you ask yourself. But I think now that referees have been empowered to do so, that... I guess you've only got to say one curse word and I think all things go off the uh, off the scale, don't they? Anyway, right, so let's move on because it's last man standing time. The title race will go down to the wire, I promise you that. And also, more importantly, everyone got it wrong last week. So, drama on Leap Year Day, um, which means everyone gets a free pick. We start again, reset button is hit, but the points are still locked in. So the points are Cole on 24, Drew on 22, myself on 14. Drew, you get to go first. Who's your last man standing this weekend? Well, we all get free hits because we all had terrible weekends. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, I'm going to take one that people may not be looking at, but I think it's a good one. I'm going with Brighton, 100% guaranteed losers this weekend when they travel to Wolves. I think that's a very fair shout, actually. I think Brighton have had an awful start to 2020. I think we should have enough time to chat about that. But yes, good shout. Carl, what about yourself, mate? Well, Dan, I'm going to go against the grain here and upset you know most of my fellow mates, but I'm going for a Spurs defeat at Burnley this weekend. Oh, I wow. just think the way the current form is. I know, I know, I know. I, I, the pitchforks are out. I can already see my mate rocking up to the front door, but I just don't think the way we're playing, we'll get anything there. And I think we'll, we, unfortunately, we'll be a we'll be a guaranteed loser. Yeah, to be honest, Carl, I can see your logic. It's not the uh, the worst call you've ever made, and I'm going to go. Hopefully safe. I'm going to go for Bournemouth to lose at Liverpool. I can't see Liverpool failing to win two in a row with the form they've been in all season. So I'm going to go for Bournemouth to lose at Anfield. So just a quickly recap. Drew's gone for Brighton to lose at Wolves. Cole's gone for Spurs to lose at Burnley. I've gone for Bournemouth to lose at Liverpool. They are our last man standing picks. We'll see how we do next week. Right, so let's go back to Friday now. And it does seem that Daniel Fark has been listening to his podcast because he must have used my closing lines from the last episode as inspiration in the dressing room because Carl Norwich found a league win and I guess against the Leicester side when you look at it something of a surprise I'm telling you Dan we're missing a trick here <laughs> I'm ready to come across the pond I know I've never been I'll do it from Premier League <laughs> I'll tell you just, just get us in the ground get us to do this pod live on the day and we'll get you out your relegation trouble. A great result for them, wasn't it, to find that? Um, and as you say, we kind of wrote them off, and it's typical at the moment what we're doing. As soon as we write someone off, they find a performance, and they manage to get a result out of the bag and make us look really stupid. But one that they desperately needed, I don't think it will be enough to save them in the long run, but a win's a win, and it can only, if you think, boost morale and confidence for the next game you've got coming up. Yeah, it's certainly given them, a, I guess, a fighter's chance with nothing else. And I think with a quarter of the season to go, they need that at the very minimum. So, Drew, we mentioned, well, I mentioned that Norwich were perhaps one note. I mean, sort of, we're going to discuss that in this show. Now, obviously they won, but did you feel they did anything different? Or was this more of a case of Leicester in the rut that they're in and Norwich being able to take advantage of that? Definitely the latter. I think Norwich took advantage of Leicester. Um, obviously, I'm sure we'll get to the VAR decision at least, or, or we'll touch on it. Uh, which took away a goal from Leicester. But I think for Norwich, right, there wasn't too much different here, right? Even the goal, right, it came kind of out of nowhere. One fullback crossing, switching, kind of just sending it across, uh, finding the other fullback, Jamal Lewis. And, I mean, what I mean, what a fantastic strike and great goal for him. But from Norwich, I didn't really see too much that was different and they've been saying all year that they're going to go down swinging. This is what made them successful, right? Lots of low crosses into the box, trying to find Timu Puki uh, with everything. They're going to rely on him. They've said they're going to go down swinging that way. And so I do like that they've stuck to their word. I do like they've tried to make what worked for them in the championship work in the Premier League. Obviously, they see uh, it's a very difficult task to do that, but not too much different in this game. And I think... They're going to continue to do the same thing for the remaining 10 games of the year. I don't see much changing at Norwich. Carl, we speak of ruts, and I think it's fair to say that Jamie Vardy is certainly inside one at the moment. So I guess it's no real surprise that his lack of goals have also coincided with Leicester's failure to win any of their last four league matches. 
Yeah, that's right, Dan. I mean, and that is clear to see, isn't it? You know, he was on fire at that early part of the season and really firing them towards that Champions League and possibly putting them in the title race. Um, and as you say, that injury came along and kind of derailed his season. And rightfully, as you say, it looks like it's possibly derailed Leicester's season because since then, they haven't been the same side. They haven't managed to find that rhythm and get, you know, games going on their side. Um and rightfully one that, as you say, you know, they all need to really kind of turn that around because right now you could sit there and say that, you know, the, the way things are going in that race for the top four, they really don't want to give anyone a sniff of possibly catching them and overtaking them. And the way they're playing right now, they're giving everyone some hope that they can be caught and possibly overtaken. So they, they really do need to find some form, get scoring goals again and get those wins back in back in the bag. Drew, I know you've been, in, I guess, an exponent of Leicester not being secure in the top four. This past month has certainly suggested that, that they maybe got out of the blocks too quickly. Now, you can sort of say that and think that's a valid excuse if they were playing in multiple cups and in Europe. But really, fundamentally, they're playing just once a week. So is that more of an issue from the direction of Brennan Rodgers, that he's perhaps a bit one note in himself, that he can't really, I guess, you know, he talks about character and that kind of stuff, but he has a a game plan it's not quite getting to the players like is there more of a disconnect for the manager or is it the players point of view no i i honestly i i wouldn't agree with with a lot of that because I think you've seen Leicester win in different ways this year. You've seen them win on the counterattack. You've seen them win when they've had to kind of more dominate ball in possession. I mean, just take the example at Southampton when they won nine nil. I know that's an extreme example, uh, a wild day, but you've seen them win in different ways. Um, and so I think they're not exactly a, a one-trick pony under Rodgers. I think it's more the talent level because while they are a great team, and I do think they are one of the – probably the third – one of the top four, probably third most talented team in the league, they don't really have world-class players. And so I think because of that, you're going to see – Times like this, you're going to see bad stretches, right? You mentioned Jamie Vardy, who hasn't been scoring. I mean, in this game, he, he didn't even play because of another kind of slight knock, which doesn't help. And so I, I think at Leicester, they're a good team, I think a really good team. But when you compare them to world-class teams that they have to play against and that we expect to see in a team qualifying for the Champions League, I think that's kind of the disconnect. I think Brendan Rodgers matches his team really well. I mean, we saw that last year and for a long time this season. I think they're kind of going through a, a bad stretch right now, but I think they will get out of it. I just don't know if that's going to happen before the end of this season. That's kind of the question. Okay, Drew, good point, actually. I think that's a fair statement to make on the uh, basis of that question I asked, but in terms of VAR, you just referenced it. Do you want to expand on that and your take on the uh, scenario on, Wednesday, oh, sorry, on Friday night? Yeah, Leicester was... Uh, had a goal disallowed from Kalichi Iannaccio. Uh The ball was adjudged to have come off his hand, and so VAR ruled it out. And that's part of the new ruling is any ball that touches your hand or arm in the buildup to the goal, if it leads to it, then the goal gets chopped off, even if it's accidental. And so this one, I wasn't convinced, mainly because I think it was hard to tell between whose arm did it hit. Was it the defender or was it Kalichi Iannaccio? And so that was my... Um, hesitation with this one and I thought it was a little bit harsh to take it away because again like we mentioned earlier clear and obvious to me I don't think it was and so that's why I disagreed with the VAR call I mean this is something I would like to see in change to VAR is I want them to have three ways of communicating to uh, communicating the call kind of like they do in the NFL you can have call confirmed which means whatever was called on the field or on the pitch I'm sorry um, we confirm, we see that is true, whether guys offside or handball, whatever it is confirmed, we can see it's clear. Another one call stands means it's not clear. We're not sure. Therefore the call on the pitch stands, whatever the referee said, we're going to go with that because it's not clear and obvious. And then the third outcome should be, uh, overturned because now we see clearly we got it wrong. I think that's the problem is they'll tell us call reversed or not, but we don't really know why. But I think with those three outcomes, similar to what they do in the NFL, I think that would really help. And on goals like this, we would know why they overturned it because they felt it was clear and obvious or because they didn't. 
Therefore, they just went with the call on the pitch. That's a big change that I would like to see to VAR. Carl, could you see that three-stage process working over here? Yeah, I think any any you know any more communication is always a good thing, isn't it? I think it's the one thing that when we look at VAR, especially if you're in the stadium, you know we've always you know everyone is always saying that you're kind of unclear as to why something might have been given, you know what's been seen. So I just think that sort of communication and everyone being open to it and if you like transparent, then I think it kind of just clears it up for everyone and you find it a little bit easier to accept if it's gone against you, you know. And so, yeah, for me, I'm all for more communication. And as Drew said, I'm all for that kind of like more NFL, you know, open the mic up, the referee, you know, or someone explains what's been given and why it's been given. I think it just makes everyone feel a little bit better. Okay, right. Leicester, they're still in third, if only because no one really can mount a challenge behind them. And Chelsea were once again (laughs) in a generous mood as they battled back against Bournemouth. So, Cole, on Saturday, from a Chelsea point of view, that looks like a bad point. However... Fast forward 24 hours, the other results, it's not the worst one in the world either, is it? No, definitely not. Um, You know, they they kind of still feel they've got it within their own hands. So, yeah, not a bad result all round. Um, But let's say, again, you don't want momentum to swing against you. So they've got to start finding a way to turn those negative performances into good performances. um, Because otherwise, people will catch you eventually um, if you keep slipping. And, and, you know, you can see it happening in the way that this season's gone. You know, everyone is turning everyone over. Everyone's a bit patchy. So you just want to try and get the form going in your direction. And I think any team that really swings a run of results together now really cements that place for themselves. I'll tell you what, we haven't really got time to chat about it this week, but I think Man United might be the dark horse in all this. I think Bruno Fernandes has given him a huge boost. I know it's quite early to tell in what he's done. Funny you say that, though, Dan. I said that to one of my friends recently really? after this weekend. I said, if I'm, if I'm tipping the top four now... I think I'm putting United in there. I yeah. think they'll just get that run together now and, and I think they'll pip everyone else. Yeah, I think, well, obviously, they've got the Manchester Derby this coming weekend, so we'll see how that pans out. But if they can get you know even a point against Man City at home, then that just keeps the momentum going. And I think they might just be in the box seat to challenge Drew's Chelsea. So, Drew, you are our resident blue. What's your hot take on a rather cold showing at the Vitality Stadium? I don't think it was a very positive point at all because no. I see where you guys are coming from. In that later when we saw other results, it was better than than what it was the previous 24 hours. I will agree with that point. I just disagree with that. The one point Chelsea got was good uh, in the end. It was a bad performance and I think perfectly summed up by Frank Lampard when he said he doesn't want a defender as his top goal scorer. And that's what Chelsea have right now. Marcus Alonso, a, a left wing back, got a brace and not from set pieces. This was from open play. That's how bad Chelsea have been in attack. And Lampard perfectly summed it up. You know, honestly, I think Marcus Alonso is going to be the next Gareth Bale. He's just going to become a striker. And I think Chelsea need to play him up front. Uh, Obviously, that's not really going to happen. But this wasn't a great game. Uh, Marcus Alonso, hats off. He's saving Chelsea right now. But Chelsea are in a very bad run of form right now. And, you know, we're recording this on, on Tuesday. And the FA Cup is tonight. Chelsea play Liverpool. I wouldn't be shocked to see Chelsea put on a very strong side more because they don't have a stronger and worse 11. I think every position is up for grabs right now, maybe minus the keeper because it's Willy Caballero. So I think right now Chelsea are in a bad run of form. You mentioned Manchester United possibly is a dark horse in. Chelsea might be a dark horse out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, I think there's, there's definitely going to be a twist. I don't think it's going to be as you stand now. I think there's going to be some dramatic movement towards the end. While we're on the Chelsea theme, Drew, we do have to touch on the Champions League. Can you give us a quick, um, well, quick dissection of what happened, I guess, in the second half? Because in the first 45, you were pretty much running with the punches, weren't you? Second 45, collapse. Discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Chelsea got slaughtered in the second half by Bayern. And honestly, it, it reminded me of probably what like World War II looked like when the Americans came in and destroyed everyone. I mean, it, it wasn't even close. <laughs> Bayern was able to slice and dice them. Alfonso Davies was fantastic on the left side. I mean, he burned every Chelsea player for pace at least one time. No one could keep up with him, and he was amazing. You know, that Bayern team, they looked like 
Champions League contenders. Like they can lift the trophy in Istanbul in a few months. Uh, the the one question I would have is they were playing Chelsea who haven't been great. Are they able to replicate that type of performance against someone better? If it's going to be Manchester City later, even though their defense isn't the best, is it going to be um, you know Barcelona or, or whoever it happens to be? So that would be the question I have for Bayern. Um, for how good they looked, I don't know if how much of that was Bayern being fantastic and Chelsea just being you know god awful on the evening. And so Chelsea right now, I think zero percent chance. Of, of advancing in the Champions League. It was a terrible performance from them. I think, in fairness, you've got to give Bayern a bit of credit. I mean, Carl, we know just as good as anyone how it feels like to be steamrolled by Bayern. I wasn't going to bring that no, up. No, no, but, you know, it's, it's, it's almost... <laughs> I mean, I'm just reminding myself, really. I'm trying to forget about it. But in all seriousness, you know, you look at a game like that, Carl, and you think, we just shipped seven. And as bad as that is to take, Bayern were absolutely brilliant that night, weren't they? Well, when they click and they're going forward as an attacking unit, I'm telling you now, they're scary. Um, and as you say, if, if they get in the right mood and the right groove, the players they've got can just tear anyone apart. Um, and we saw from the goals, didn't we? You know, they're clinical, they're fast, they break with pace and danger. Um, and like as you say, you know, they're a force for anyone. And you certainly wouldn't write them off of actually winning it. Um, overall, because they really do look dangerous up front. We just have to make sure that they've got it sewn up defensively. I think they can be got at. You know, we saw, didn't we, Dan, and that night we played them. You know, on another night, if we took our chances, we could have been a couple ahead and possibly, you know, the result's different. But, yeah, if you give them a sniff at goal, they'll tear you to shreds. And talking of a team they might meet, Cole, Manchester City. So a quick dissection of how they did at the Bernabeu last week. Oh, brilliant performance, wasn't it? You know, full credit to them. They set up to play a, a, a good possession game and they certainly did that and they took advantage of a Madrid side that have not clicked, not really playing that well altogether. But full credit to Man City. It was a dominant performance and one that I think sets them up to go through nicely now. Right, let's revert back to the Premier League now. We referenced that Bournemouth got a point. On the basis of the actual result, it's a good point, but a bad combination of results against them because not only did Watford win... But West Ham won as well. So although there were protests off the pitch for the Hammers, Cole, the owners will certainly be glad that a poor performance didn't turn into all things toxic at the London Stadium. And now West Ham can just about start looking up the table, can't they? Yeah, that's right. I, I think their performance against Liverpool at Anfield kind of give them a little bit more confidence because they you know, were really in that game and unfortunate to come away not having got something. And we said last week, you know, that can they use that as a spring ball to go and get a decent result? They did. They used it to their, you know, benefit. They put in another good performance this weekend and got the result they need. And like, as you say, you know, defeat that day with everything that had gone on, you really could have seen a toxic atmosphere and things turning nasty. That result, I think, kind of just eases that little bit of pressure, doesn't it? And, you know, if they can now start putting in those performances regularly, then they might find themselves safe by the end of the season. And they've just got to hope that people like Antonio and that can keep performing because I think he's key to their survival. And, you know, fair play. If they can produce what they've done there over those last two games, I think they'll be okay. Well, this is always the big question with West Ham, isn't it? I guess it's consistency, availability, fitness. Those three sort of key elements that always seem to hamper West Ham. But it's, well, one game's probably too early to say it's clicked Drew, but they certainly were much better than Southampton in every department. A rare off day for the Saints as of late, because since the turn of the year, they've been quite good, haven't they? So I think Ralph Ralph Hazel had every reason to be complaining come full-time. Yeah, I think he was right to be upset, because Southampton, they didn't look like they were up for a match. I think they expected to kind of roll over West Ham because of the good form that they have, or that Saints have been in. And so I think... They were were a little bit lackadaisical on on the day and deserve to lose. And I think this is kind of – I think this is going to be a good thing for them because I think it kind of brings them back to reality of saying, guys, we've been on a good run, but this isn't done yet. They flirted with relegation you know, almost each of the past, what, four or five seasons, and they always seem to survive. And so right now I think to make sure they don't get into that much of a fight again, they've got to – Turn everything back on. This weekend was a slip-up, but I think Hoodle is going to be able to rally his troops. In the beginning of the year, I didn't think that was going to happen, and I said no. 
But he did it once. I think he's going to be able to do it again. And I think Southampton will be steady and they'll be all right for the rest of the year. Well, that's right. I mean, if you look back to our old episodes, which I don't really recommend, but, you know, that kind of, <laughs> that mid-season talk, we were talking about names on the chopping blocks, like Marco Silva, gone. Ralph was really a prominent one. And we were sort of saying days, if not weeks. Do you know what I mean? Really sort of close to it. So yeah. the turnaround job has been quite good. Great, really. And I think it's, again, put egg on our faces. More egg on our face now, Carl, because Crystal Palace have all but assured survival after back-to-back wins. So we're having a real lousy streak about teams in the bottom half. But <laughs> You mean a great streak. Well, yes, that's, that's true. That's true. Uh... So with that in mind, if you're a Brighton fan, you're probably keeping your fingers crossed now because we're going to write them off because they have had a really bad 2020. So bad that they've not won a game. Now, if you look at the results they've had at the moment, you compare that to... About 12 months ago when Chris Hewton started that awful rut where they didn't win any of their last nine. I think they drew three, lost six. It's starting to mirror that. And I think there's almost a crossroads in the Brighton project when you consider that Potter was given a new contract three months into the season, three months into his job. So have Brighton been a bit too early with the blind faith? I think obviously they want to try and move forward under this guy, don't they? And they saw some really sort of good signs early on in the season um, that, that kind of encouraged them. As you say, it's always a fear when you jump early and give someone a massively long contract, isn't it? You know, you, you're, remind, you're reminded of sort of Pardew at Newcastle and then you see suddenly it can turn very quickly. I don't think Brighton will rush this, though. I, I think they'll stick with the guy and give him a chance. But as you said, you know, the, the year has started really poorly for them. And again, they're another funny side, right? And aren't they? They can play some really good football, but they're just not clinical enough and they just can't get results going their way. You know, there was a, they had a brilliant chance in the first half that they should really have scored from. And then at that point, you don't know how the game goes there, but they don't take that chance. They're not clinical. And then, as we know, they get punished at the other end. Um you worry about them because you kind of think, have they got enough within the squad to kind of turn it around? I'm not so sure there's enough goals there. Um, so you do worry. I don't think they'll panic, though. I think they'll stick with this guy. And I think even if they was to go down, I think they'd stick with him. But then how much longer we'd get after that, I'm not so sure. I think really, Drew, the blueprint will be Burnley, won't it? Because, yes, you can get relegated and keep your manager and keep that continuity. And if you get back at the first time of asking, it's... I guess, short-term pain for long-term gain. And that will be the not the actual plan that Brighton want. They're not actually planning to get relegated. But, but if if they do get relegated... I hope not. No, that would be a really awful strategy, wouldn't it? But um, if they do get relegated, then as Cole suggests, they will stay with the manager and then give them a season. If they can get back up, use that money, they should hopefully be stronger for it. That said, it is a risky strategy, isn't it? Because the Championship is an absolute war of attrition once you're in there. It is. And here's the difference, I think, with Burnley, right, just because you you cited them as an example. You know, they try and embrace that hard-to-play-against, gritty, 4-4-2 defensive solidity team, embracing the idea of we're a smaller club and we're going to battle, you know, we're going to grind it out. Where Brighton more are trying to move into the new era of more open and expansive, beautiful football and that was the reason I think that they got rid of Hutton and, and brought in Potter. But the problem is, to play that way, you have to have, especially up front, really clinical guys. And, and I think a smaller club like Brighton, they're going to struggle to find enough good players in attack that can finish, that are going to give them the goals, that are going to give them the qualities they need in order to succeed this way. So I think it's especially risky from that regard for not just Brighton, of course, but any club that that's a little bit smaller like that, that tries to play this type of way. And so it's a risk. They have the money, obviously, from playing in the Premier League where they can spend it and try and find those players. But if they miss on one too many and waste those dollars or those pounds, I guess, or dollars, um, and then if they go back to the championship, I think it's really going to hurt them. And I don't know if they'd be, be, be able to bounce back right away. So I think this is a really dangerous game that Brighton's about to play. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that Brighton's transfer strategy, even in the Premiership, hasn't been great. There have been quite a few busts, and you do sort of wonder if those expensive, bad decisions have put them in the position where they are now. And also, when it comes to goals, no matter what level they're at, they can't keep trying to squeeze life out of Glenn Murray. You know, that fruit is going to eventually come dry, and I think they're going to have to sort of try and do some form of succession planning. But whether that level is Premier League or Championship, we'll have to wait and see. 
Right, so there's two more games to go. One we're not even going to bother with, and it's not Spurs. It's Newcastle versus Burnley, because I think that game is absolutely atrocious. So we will, <laughs> we will finish on Tottenham Wolves. Carl, I know you lamented about Spurs last night, so I'll give you Wolves' point of view. You know, we spoke about them being in something of a rut at the start of the year. You know, they weren't quite firing all cylinders, but wow, they're ignited now, because not only are they really in the Champions League race, last 16 of the Europa League, things are starting to click for Nuno's men, and it could be a really good season come the end of it. Yeah, I think they were struggling at the start of the season, wasn't they, with this Europa League um, sort of schedule and kind of finding their feet there. But as you said, they've certainly found their feet now. Um, and, and you certainly went back against them, getting at least finishing within that, either the top four or fifth. Um, and as we know, fifth this year could be a Champions League place if everything goes the way we think it might do. Um, so they're playing some really good football. You know, they've got a great spirit about them. Um, they look really organised. They're deadly and dangerous up front. You know, they've got pace to burn when you've got, you know, Jimenez doing what he does, bullying. He's not only is he a bullying type forward, but he's got a great turn and some great ability on him. You've got Traore scaring teams to death. You've got, you know, everywhere you look in that side is a solid player who knows what he's doing and does his job really well. Um, and it just leads to the sort of football we're seeing. They don't mess about with their formation. You know, they're not a team that reacts, you know, or panic if suddenly they go one down. They stick to what they're doing. They know what they want to try and do. Um, and you just got to admire what they've achieved since coming up because they do play some really good football. And, you know, in all honesty, they kind of deserve the result they got against us this weekend. And fair play to them. You know, I would love to see Wolves nick that Champions League spot. I think if they do, I think that also means they're there to stay. I don't think this is a flash in the pan. And I think any notion of the big six or whatever you want to call it will get even wider. It might not even be a thing. You know, I think you know this is a team that really is upwardly mobile. And I think that might make more bad news for Tottenham if they don't get their own house in order. Drew, you've got about two minutes. Can Tottenham get their house in order before the end of the season? If they can't, will it finally happen this summer? The reason I don't have hope for it before the season ends is because... I don't think Mourinho knows what his best defense is, and I think that's important for Mourinho teams. I, in this one, right, Tanganga and Sanchez, which, fine, if, if you want to play them, but the fact that he has to keep changing all the time. I mean, Tanganga's played probably every position across the back four, maybe even back five, since he's broken into the team. And so the fact that Mourinho hasn't settled on uh, who his best set of guys is along the back and of course they're still shipping goals for that reason I don't think that Mourinho and Spurs are going to figure it out before the end of the season come the summer I think as, as long as he can build if he has he has to build from that base defensively because that's his bread and butter if he can do that then I'll be more confident but until I see that happen I'm not confident in Spurs and Mourinho getting better well, do you know what, Drew? I think you share the sentiment of me and Cole because we come to the conclusion that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better under Mourinho this season. So I think, you know, this unfortunately is going to be a limping towards uh, May, July, whatever. Just get to August. That's the conclusion we come to. Right, coming to the end of this show, like I say, Newcastle and Burnley fans, apologies, but there's really nothing to take away from that game. If Newcastle failed to score this week, we will focus on them in more detail because that will be five games in a row. And people say the table doesn't lie. I think it's lying about Newcastle at the moment because they could be in real trouble. So hold that thought. And you know why I've said that? Because they'll probably win it the weekend, won't they? Right. So, <laughs> okay. Of and again, course. And if you are a Premier League club which is struggling, do get in touch. We are open to bookings from any of the 20 grounds. Just give us a shout. and We will do our live podcast for you. That's, I promise. Right. But that's enough of me waffling on. I just need to thank my co-host, Drew. A sterling effort as always, mate. Thank you for having me on. It's always fun to talk to you guys. Um, and unfortunately, both of us were kind of lamenting our respective teams. So uh, celebrating, or maybe not celebrating, but uh, together as one. It was great today. Yeah, I think a very cathartic episode, if nothing else. And Cole, as always, an absolute pleasure to talk to you also. No, I appreciate it, Dan. Really good. Uh, I love these Tuesday chats, all things football with you guys. So another good one in the bag. Cheers, buddy. Right, with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy, and as always, this is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye.
Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.